You can turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to continue our study through the book of Romans. Almost said the gospel of Romans. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? Romans chapter 1, I just want to read our verse for us and then we'll look into the message. It says, Romans chapter 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Probably one of the most famous sermons ever preached in our land was a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was preached in Enfield, Connecticut on July 8, 1741. And if you look down over history, God has used that sermon like he has used few others. Um, When we look at our modern-day society and even the churches today, you can honestly say that the concept of God's wrath is out of sync. It's definitely out of mind with our modern view of Christianity. Uh, Even many who claim to be evangelical believers in Christ object to and even minimize at times uh, the mention of God's wrath. Uh, They may also say that they believe it because it's in the Bible, but they're almost embarrassed to mention it. When's the last time you heard a message on God's wrath, God's anger? I've heard a lot of Christians over the years say, well, I believe in a God of love, not a God of wrath. Well, you can believe in whatever you want. That doesn't change who God is. A lot of times that's caused by people ignorantly implying that the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath. He was angry. He was upset. But in the New Testament, well, we're under God's grace and he's kind of mellowed out to be this nice old guy that's just full of love. I've even had people tell me at times when you're exhorting them or explaining certain principles to them. They don't want to hear it. They say that Jesus was always loving. He was never judgmental. And I I just want to scream, pull my hair out if I had any, and say, haven't you ever read the New Testament? Haven't you ever read the words of Christ? A lot of the seeker movement, the seeker churches have kind of created a scenario where they want to draw huge crowds. And the reason they want to do that is basically to support their ministries. And I'm not saying they have ill intentions in doing that. I wouldn't call them of the heretical nature that they're just after your money. I think they want a big crowd so they can share the gospel with people. That's their, their motivating factor. But they bring people in by principles... Like this, they never want to mention the word sin because it's offensive to people. They never want to talk about judgment. They never want to talk about the blood of Christ or the sacrificial 
sacrifice of Christ. Instead, they want to focus on more positive aspects of the gospel. God loves you. God has a wonderful plan for your life. He offers you abundant life full of peace, joy, and love. He will help you with your problems. He's a here. He's a God who meets your needs. He wants you to be happy. Won't you invite him into your heart, this loving God? But there's no mention of the holiness of God, who is in every way justified in his wrath against sinners. In a lot of ways, we've bought into the old liberal message that says a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. When the Apostle Paul begins to expound the gospel that he proclaimed, he doesn't lead off with the love of God. He just doesn't. In verses 16 to 17, he talks about not being ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You don't mention the love of God there. I think sometimes we focus too much on God's love and not enough on His holiness. Not enough on the fact that God does have anger. God does have wrath. That's what we're going to study today. We want you to understand the wrath of God from a biblical perspective. When he even goes further to bring up the gospel, he doesn't even mention God's love, but he mentions God's wrath. A lot of modern critics would say, Paul, you're, you're not going to win any converts by doing this. This isn't the Dale Carnegie way that we've learned how to win friends and influence people. Paul, you need to lighten up a little bit. Maybe once you get people kind of in Christ, then you can talk about God's wrath. But when you're trying to win people to Christ, we don't want to mention the wrath or the anger of God. That's the opposite of what we want to do. We want to share with them God's love. That's what these critics say. But Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in verse 18, begins to expound on this gospel that he just talked about in verses 16 and 17. You notice it starts with the word for. He wants us to understand this gospel, why it is good news. He wants to understand why he's not ashamed of it. Why it has such power to everyone who believes to convert the soul. And so he writes in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If we're going to understand why we need God's power in the gospel and why we need His very righteousness given to us, imputed to our account, then we need to understand that His wrath is focused against our sin. 
I mean, think about it. If we're not such bad people, if we just have, you know, some goodness in us and we just kind of kind of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try a little harder to live a holy life and then God will accept us, warts and all. If we have enough good deeds to earn points to get into heaven one day, then why are we even here? Why do we need God's righteousness? And why did God, through Christ, need to bear God's wrath on the cross on our behalf? Why did that even have to happen? But see, if we're ungodly people and we're unrighteous in God's sight, which I would say the Bible calls us clearly out on this, if we have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, and as a result we're under God's wrath, His just wrath, then we desperately need God's saving power through the gospel. That's why Paul can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for salvation. That implies we need to be saved from something. What do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from our sin. Our sin is an offense to God. And the sin is not just something we do, it's literally who we are. So it's very important to understand that there's a need for this salvation because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God the last time I checked what the Word of God says. Well, as he begins this lengthy section, this section of of Romans basically is going to run from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. He's talking about the same subject. He's talking about the sinfulness of the human race. And he wants us to know without a doubt that we are sinful. At first he gives kind of a general indictment here in verses 23 to 32, after he kind of talks about the wrath of God. Maybe more these sins that are mentioned there in verses 23 to 32 of chapter 1 may be more prevalent among the Gentile people of his day. But then in verse 1 through 16 of chapter 2, he moves on and he basically indicts those who think that they're moral enough to commend themselves to God. So he hits sins basically first right out of the gate about probably the Gentiles are participating participating in and then in chapter 2 verses 1 to 16 he says now if you think that just because you don't do those things you're in the clear you're not don't think you're moral enough to commend yourself to God and then in verse 17 through chapter 3 verse 18 2 17 through 3 18 Paul turns on the Jews who obviously pride themselves on having the law and showing how they are guilty before God See, they were wearing their Judaism like a a cloak of righteousness. And Paul was telling them, no, that's not going to (laughs) work. That's the the whole idea of religion. Religion cloaks you in, in good deeds and things on the outward that make you look religious. Sometimes you go to a church and you'll see the the pastor or the priest up there in his royal gown and garb and all this stuff. I mean, why do you think they do that? Set themselves apart. 
because they're obviously more godly than anyone else. That's why they're up there and we're down here. That's the thinking. That's what world religion does. It sets a divide between those who are righteous and those who aren't. The only problem is, is they fail to understand that we're all unrighteous. None of us has done good, not one. And so Paul turns on those Jews of his day and he talks about their pride having the law and that they're also guilty before God. And then in, finally there in, in chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, he sums up by showing that the entire human race is guilty before God justly. And only at one point in verses 21 and 26 of chapter 3 does he come back and pick up the theme of verse 17 of chapter 1. That the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ is available to sinners through faith alone. See, in our text, Paul is showing why God is justified to inflict his wrath on the sinful human race. And in turn, what does that do? That shows us our need of the gospel. You can sum up the whole message, really, of the gospel if you just read verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since, oh, look at this, the creation of the world in the things that have been made. They are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him, give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. That explains the situation that we're in. And just as much as Paul wanted the Romans to understand what the gospel message was all about, he also wanted them to know why the gospel message was necessary. Sometimes we get that reversed. Sometimes we forget to tell people why the gospel message is necessary, and we just kind of forge right ahead and tell them what the gospel message is. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote about the wrath of God. He wrote about the anger of God. It's God's wrath against sin that forms the hub around which this last half of chapter 1 revolves. Now, when you preach a message about God's wrath, about God's anger, that's not going to be a popular thing. I understand that. You may have come here today thinking you need a shot in the arm. Hey, give me something to get me through the next week. You know, I don't know if this is going to do it or not for you. It depends where your mind is. But if you're looking for a little happy message to kind of just kind of help you float through the rest of the week, this is probably not going to be it. Now, I tell you that right up front, not so you just check out and fall asleep, 
But I want to share this with you, that I think what we're going to share here this morning is far more important than anything that you could ever hear that will just titillate your ears and make you feel good about yourself. Man has tried his best to reduce God to some dim-witted, doting old grandfather type of figure up in heaven. And basically all he does is he winks at our sins, our flaws, and all he does is, is love on everybody. That's what we've been kind of taught in most churches today. The idea of a wrathful God goes against any wishful thinking of a fallen human nature. And it's even, I would say, a stumbling block to a lot of Christians, people that know Christ. When you start talking about the wrath of God, it can cause them to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, I thought God was loving, I thought God was a God of love. A lot of contemporary evangelism talks only about the abundant life in Christ, the joy, the blessings of salvation, the peace that we have with God that faith in Christ brings. All those things are true. I'm not here to discount those things. All of those benefits do result from true faith, but they're not the whole picture of God's plan of salvation, beloved. See, the truth that runs parallel, the truth of God's judgment against sin and those who participate in it must also be heard. See, for Paul, there is fear, literal fear of eternal condemnation. That was his motivation that he offered to people for coming to Christ. You say, you mean you scare people into the kingdom? Well, there may be some of that. That's not a bad tactic to take. The first pressure he applied to all evil men was he wanted them to understand the wrath of God, the anger of God. He was determined that they understand the reality of being under God's wrath because of their own sin. Then once they understood that, then he could come alongside and say, now, I want you to know that God has provided a way out. That approach makes both logical sense and theological sense. You cannot appreciate the wonder of God's grace until you know about the perfect demands of God's law. You cannot appreciate the fullness of God's love until you know something about the fierceness of God's anger and wrath against sin and against all who fail to perfectly obey the law. You cannot appreciate God's forgiveness until you know about the eternal consequences of the sins that require a penalty and the need for forgiveness in the first place. I mean, think of it this way. If I told you that there was a cure that was just discovered for a very deadly, fatal disease. If I told you that today, you'd probably say, well, that was nice. That's nice to hear. Hopefully that helps some people. But if I followed that up and said, and by the way, you have that disease. All of a sudden, your interest peaks, doesn't it? Well, where can I get this cure? All of a sudden, you're thinking, well, how did they find this cure? You know, I, I need this cure. I don't want to die. Immediately, your interest peaks because you have a need for that antidote or that medication. 
One of the greatest tragedies, I believe, in modern-day Christianity and much evangelism that goes on today is the failure to preach and teach the wrath of God and the condemnation that results upon all with unforgiven sin. We just kind of leave that out. It's uncomfortable. I'll admit it. I mean, you know, when I'm talking to somebody at Starbucks or something, I I don't really want to open up a conversation with them, trying to evangelize them, saying, do you know that you're under the wrath of God? That would probably get weird looks from people. But that's what they need to hear. That's exactly what they need to hear. We've kind of taken this message and we cut it down into this sentimental gospel. And it falls way short of the gospel that Jesus in the gospels and also that Paul throughout the book of Romans and his other epistles preached. That's why our churches are such disarray and a mess. Because it's filled with people who came to Jesus, quote, because they had a little quiver in their liver and somebody told them that Jesus would make it go away. And they said, yes, sign me up. They walked the aisle, they prayed the prayer, they did whatever you do. They never thought that their lives were an offense to God. They never understood that their sin piqued the wrath of God against them. They were under the just judgment of God. They never understood that. They just heard that God has a wonderful plan for their life and that Jesus loves them and won't you invite him into your heart. Sure, why not? Why wouldn't you do that? And then they're taken within the folds of the church, probably not even converted. They're taken within the folds of the church and they're affirmed in their faith and they're taught all the Christianese that they need to learn. But in reality, their life hasn't changed at all. They've just become religious. They just go to church once a week. One thing that made an impact on me in this missions trip, when you talk to some of these pastors, and they literally left a life, a family, everything, and committed to Christ. Um, I mean, you can see there's a change. There's something different. They're, they're, their priorities are different. Their lifestyle's different. I mean, the kids in the, the orphanage over there, they basically have, I think, a half hour, hour of prayer and worship every day. Every day. It's just amazing to me. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, if we can pull that off on a Sunday morning, it'd be good. <laughs> without being distracted. If we could come here somehow on a Sunday morning without thinking about how the Giants are doing or the 49ers or whatever's coming up next on your agenda and just focus for maybe an hour and a half on God's Word and fellowship and and asking the Spirit to work through us and be honest and transparent enough to look at our own heart first before we point our fingers at somebody else. But see, the problem is we have people that have kind of dumbed down their Christianity to the point where if they go to church once a week, they can check it off their little list and feel real good about themselves. That's not the Christianity of the Bible, beloved. That's just not. 
That's not what God, what Jesus, what the apostles, the rest of the New Testament has prescribed for us. I'm not here to give you a guilt trip. I'm just here to tell you the reality of what we're looking at. And we need to somehow understand that this means something to the God that we claim to serve. He doesn't just turn a blind eye when you pass up an opportunity to fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ because maybe you're too busy. I could see if maybe the majority of our time was spent at church. We were abusing the opportunity to work or to minister to our family, and all we were doing was spending time together hour after hour here. But that's not the case. We all know that's not the case. And somehow we're given to kind of a less, lesser degree of commitment as time goes on. The longer we're a Christian, we, we kind of feel like somehow we don't need the fellowship, we don't need the Bible study, we don't need the prayer meetings, we don't need these things anymore because, well, I've been a Christian for 40 years, or I've been doing this, or I've been teaching this. That doesn't mean anything to God. Believe me, it doesn't. In reality, God is love. He is. However, His one aspect of his love is his wrath and hatred of sin. See, you have to think of it this way, beloved. God is a perfect being. He's perfect in love. But he's also perfect in his holiness. He's perfect in his judgment. He's perfect even in his wrath. It's hard to hear those words that God is a God of hate. But he is, just as much as he's a God of love. He has a love toward sinners, but he definitely has a hate toward the sin. Many people are bothered by the thought that God somehow reacts in wrath and in judgment. Personally, I think I would be kind of a little more bothered if he didn't. If he just kind of let everything go under the bridge, everything's cool, don't worry about it. That wouldn't make any sense. He wouldn't be just. And so Paul's purpose here in our text, and all the way through chapter 3 of 20, is to describe for us the charges that God levels against all mankind. So the next couple weeks is going to be a tough couple weeks or months or however long it takes us to get through this stuff. So if you're looking to be kind of encouraged in your faith, I pray that the Word of God will do that. But if you're looking for a happy, happy devotion kind of message, maybe do that outside, and then when you come to church, you're ready to hear about what we're going to hear about. It's just as hard for me to preach on this as it is for you to hear it. Trust me, this is not comfortable speaking about the wrath of God. I had someone tell me years ago they actually left the church and they said one of the reasons was was that all I talked about was God's anger and his sin I said really? that's all I talk about it was just kind of a 
unique place we were at, I think, in the Gospel of Matthew at the time, and we were dealing with that subject matter, and they had come maybe for a month and a half as we were dealing with that subject matter, but they just couldn't handle it. And as a result, they moved on. Well, I want us to see here, I mean, when you stop and you think of God's wrath, first of all, you have the fact of God's wrath. It's there in Scripture. We don't make it up. What does this answer? It answers the question, what is the wrath of God? Let's look at the character of this wrath. In the New Testament, there are two words that refer to the wrath or the anger of God. One is thumas, which means basically, um, that's where we get our, our English word thermometer or thermonuclear. It refers to a sudden explosion of anger. It's used in Luke chapter 4, verse 20, 28, when the people of Nazareth wanted to harm Jesus. It was that kind of anger. It's also the most common word for wrath in the book of Revelation. But the word that's used here in Romans 18 is the different word. It literally means to become red-faced. It pictures someone who is holding his anger while it's building up. Have you ever done that? You ever been there, guys? You're talking to your wife, your spouse, and you're, you're saying to yourself, don't get angry, don't get angry. But you can feel it building within you, and you're, you know, you're gritting your teeth and everything. That's the idea here. It implies that there will come a time when this anger will just come gushing forth. It refers to a settled, determined indignation. It doesn't refer to this momentary, emotional, often uncontrollable anger that we deal with as human beings. That's the word thumos. But the word here is very particular. I mean... The idea behind this word is if you were to go up here in the foothills of the Sierras and you were to build yourself a man-made dam and you got it to the point where you could hold some water back and that water started building. But you didn't really know what you were doing. You didn't really engineer it, right? You just put some logs and some mud together and boy, all of a sudden the water started backing up. What's going to happen eventually as that water backs up and backs up and backs up? Eventually it's going to burst that dam. That's the idea of this word. God's wrath is is building up. It's storing up. And one day when that dam bursts forth and all the fury of those pent-up waters flow forth and destroy everything in its path, that's a good description of God's wrath. That's what's going to happen one day. When you look in throughout the Bible, you see a lot of different verses that deal with the wrath of God. We're just going to look at a couple this morning just briefly. First of all, you have back in Genesis chapter 3, verses Uh, or Genesis chapter uh, 6 to 8, it talks about the flood. And it talks about how God's wrath was built up and he was restraining it and restraining it and restraining it until the day when it just burst forth in that flood. Wiped out everything except that was in the ark. That's the idea. Or you can look at Genesis chapter 19 when it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. And the wrath of God slowly built up against those people and their immorality until it burst forth in divine judgment, and they were wiped out. Or even in Exodus 14 at the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his people had been dealt with by God through plagues, and God was restraining his anger. You'd think they'd get the message, but no. 
And all of a sudden, the dam bursts forth, and the entire Egyptian army is drowned in the sea. See, the good news, the good news, beloved, is simply this, that those who are in Christ, the good news for those in Jesus is that when Jesus was hanging on that cross, God directed and and focused his built-up anger, his wrath against all your sin, present, future, past. He poured it all out on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ when he hung on the cross. That's why a lot of times you look at the passion of the Christ and you look at the picture and, you, boy, your heart's touched. You're kind of moved seeing the physicality of Jesus' suffering, the passion of the Christ. But that doesn't even come near to what Christ went through spiritually. Because he was enduring all the wrath of all the sin of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in Christ. It was all laid on him and he didn't, he didn't deserve any of it. So those of us who are saved by grace have found a place of shelter, you might say, from that awesome wrath of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 9, we get this in a little while, but it says, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood... Much shall we be saved by him from what? What's it say? The wrath of God. We're saved from the wrath of God. Does God react in sudden outbursts? Sure he does. You don't have to, I mean, you look at that, they're they're totally holy outbursts, but he does. You look at when Israel had rebelled, they were instantly afflicted by a plague in, in Romans 11, 16, or, uh, Numbers 11.16. You think of Miriam who was, who was afflicted with leprosy in Numbers 12.10. There were occasions when the wrath of God is unleashed in an instant. Even in the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira, right? They lied. About something as simply, simple as the value of some property. They tried to make themselves look better than what they were. So they came to church and said, oh, we sold all the property and we're giving you all the money, but they weren't. They were holding some back to their own. And God struck them dead right on the spot. I mean, I'd say that's a little bit of wrath, a little bit of anger there. God typically deals with sinners by holding back his wrath in an effort to bring about repentance in their lives. That's why you can ask the question, well, if God is so wrathful and so vengeful and, and can do all this stuff, why do people get away with so much today? Because God doesn't settle all his accounts according to our schedule. It's that simple. God will settle his accounts on his terms. And you may look at your neighbors and look at them and think, man, this guy... <clears throat> definitely not living for God. He's living for Satan if he's living for everybody. But man, he's got more money than I. He's got a nicer car. He's, family looks, everything looks good. I mean, he's just living it up. Come on, God. What's going on here? Here I am trying to live for you and I'm barely making it check to check. And man, a lot of things are going on in my family that don't seem right. The wrath of God will come. character of his wrath is just that. But it's also, we have to look at the caliber of his wrath. 
Notice that it says, yeah, it's the wrath of God. That's, that's the, the, the character of it. It's God's wrath. But it also, the caliber of his wrath is that simple thing there. When you and I get angry, we display our wrath. And when we do, what, what happens? It's sin. Very seldom are we able to get angry at something and not sin. <laughs> you know, uh, we like to think, oh, this is righteous anger. Most times we're in the flesh. Let's just be honest. I mean, even at times when, you know, we get in an argument with our spouse or whatever, and, you know, man, I don't know if you do this, but I do this. You know, I try to somehow turn the tables and tell my wife, well, you're the, you're the reason I'm angry. <laughs> You know, that, that never worked, but I thought it worked for a couple years, but it, it doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense either. Because she'd always say, I made, yeah, you're the reason, you know, if you just stop doing this or that or saying this or that, then I wouldn't be angry anymore. We say, you have no control. No, I have no control. And then, you know, we're in an argument and the phone rings. Oh, how you doing? Oh, yeah, we'll be over for dinner in a couple minutes. Thank you. <laughs> Wait a minute. You just said you had no control over your anger. What was that? See, we want to blame other people for our anger. But this is the wrath of God. On the other hand, God's wrath is always, it's always balanced. It's always fair. It's perfectly just. Because God's attributes are balanced. And he's divinely perfect. If they weren't, he wouldn't be God. If God did not have wrath and God did not have anger, then he would not be God. It's that simple. God is perfect in love on the one hand, and he's equally perfect in hate on the other hand. Just as God totally loves, he also totally hates. I never heard that before. His love is unmixed, but so is his hatred. If you question me, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, of Christ. The, the writer of Hebrews says this, you have loved righteousness and what? Hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness before your companion. See, there's that perfect balance in the nature of God. And one of the, the biggest tragedies in Christianity today is a failure to preach on the hatred, the wrath, the judgment of God. Because we just want everybody to feel so good about themselves, so lovey-dovey kind of a thing. Mushy, you might say. I mean, you can be sure of this. You can be sure that when the wrath of God falls on a life, it was deserved, first of all. And it was also executed with perfection. Divine justice. We just need to understand that there is no possible way for the Lord to react against sin but in judgment. That's the only way he can react. There's no other way. He's appalled by sin and will react against it. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that. So it's this wrath of God... But also the consistency of his wrath. Notice it says there in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed. It is revealed. 
The wrath of God is constantly in view. It doesn't go away. Just because we live in the New Testament, it doesn't mean that God is not wrathful, that God is not angry, that God doesn't hate. He does. He is. We can see it around us all the time, but a lot of times we're unsure of what it is. I mean, you would look at unbelievers and you would think that their lives would be filled with pain and suffering from a human perspective. And as Christ followers, our our lives are filled with bliss and happiness. But when you look into the Word of God, it tells us, it becomes very clear that God in His long, long suffering gives the wicked many opportunities, many chances to repent. He wants them to come to know Him. He wants them to understand His forgiveness. Asaph with his struggle in Psalm 73 is a good example of that. He saw the prosperity of the wicked and the the struggles of the children of God. And it caused him a lot of confusion, a lot of anxiety, you might say, in Psalm 73. His His perspective was really cleared up when he considered the end of those without the Lord. See, you know, your unbelieving friends may look like they're doing real well, but you know what? In the end, we all die. And don't believe the lie, the, die, the guy that dies with the most toy wins. That's just not true, because you're not taking your toys with you. When you leave this life, you will be ushered into the eternal life, and you will be either in the presence of God, or you will be in a place of utter torment for all eternity called hell. There, there's no in-between, there's no purgatory, there's no second chance. And when we begin to understand that, we clearly see that God doesn't always pay off on Fridays. He's not on our schedule. But His wrath is consistent. It's just. And then we also see the course of His wrath. Where does it come from? It says it originates in heaven. It said, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Wow! Did you ever think of heaven being the place where the wrath of God is? I never really thought about that before. I thought heaven was gold streets and boy, everybody's singing and dancing and just having a jolly old time. No, the wrath of God is there as well. That's where it comes from. See, we have to stop thinking that we're in control here. We have to believe that God is in control And you know what? He's going to have the last word on this matter. Wrath will come against all sin, whether it's the cause and effect, wrath of reaping and sowing, as we're talked about in Scripture. If you go out and you rob a bank, you're probably going to get caught, and you're probably going to go to prison. Cause and effect. Or the full-blown wrath of God revealed in his personal fury against sin. The wrath of God always originates in heaven. There's a higher order, there's a higher standard than man. We're not in charge of our final destiny. God is. God will always have the final word. When we were overseas, it became very clear 
to a lot of people, it didn't really matter whether you were American or who you were. <laughs> they just knew you weren't from their country. You know, we, we like to think ourselves a lot of times as Americans as well, we're the cream of the crop. You know, everybody has to bow to our whatever. Well, when you're over there and they don't speak your language and they don't really want to learn your language, it's, it's hard to understand that. We just think that everybody is, is under the umbrella of America and, and, and that's how some people feel when it comes to God. They think that God is this all-loving God and it's just kind of like, well, we'll just all be accepted. No. The wrath of God originates in heaven. Well, look at the focus of God's wrath quickly. The focus of God's wrath. And these will go quickly. This answers the question, who is God's wrath focused against? Who is God's wrath focused against? Well, it tells us there basically two areas. First of all, all ungodliness. This refers to man's relationship to the Lord. Ungodliness. They've taken God out of the picture. They're enemies of God. Romans 8, 7. Romans 5, 10. They're focused... They are the focus of his anger. They are the focus of his wrath. And he will react in wrath against the sins of humanity and to all those who fail to repent and to get in a right relationship with him. They will all feel the fury of God's wrath in hell. The focus of God's wrath. says also there not just unrighteous but it or ungodliness but it says unrighteousness that refers to man's relationship with fellow man see because we're fallen creatures because we don't have a proper relationship with god anymore our creator therefore our relationship with everybody else is messed up so many times in counseling you're trying to work with people on the horizontal and you're trying to help them in the relationship with each other but neither one of them know christ Neither one of them has been regenerate. Neither one of them has been transformed by the Spirit of God. So you're dealing with two fallen people who can't really do what you're telling them to do. That's why biblical counseling is always to point them to Christ. Point them to Christ. Because if they can get the relationship with God on the right, on the the straight and narrow, on the right relationship with God, then the other relationships seem to work out. Because all of a sudden you're empowered by something greater than yourself called the Spirit of God. And you're able to live in a way that is pleasing to God. But God's wrath is focused on those two areas. That covers everything. God's relationship with man and man's relationship with man. But it's also focused on all sin. God hates sin. He hates it with a passion. Um, One thing that we fail to understand, I think, as we live in the age of grace, is that very fact. The fact when we go out and we sin as Christians, that grieves the heart of God. Well, I thought we were forgiven. You are forgiven. But it still grieves his heart. Kind of like you're shoving it in his face. Ephesians 2.3 calls us children of wrath. Because we have an absence of a genuine relationship with our creator. 
A lot of times we get into some false religion that kind of replaces the relationship with God. And all of a sudden we have a relationship with a religion. Big deal. But the lost person, they will worship another God. And they will set themselves up as God. Either one of those activities angers the true God because you're taking away from his glory. And it brings wrath into their lives. But it says that God's wrath is focused on sin and all have sinned. God hates all sin. God's against it. He can't allow it to go unpunished or he wouldn't be a just God. He's a good God, but he's also a just God. He cannot just wink and let it pass under the bridge unpunished. And he will react in wrath against the sins of humanity one day. And those who fail to repent and get in a right relationship with him through Christ will feel the fury of his wrath. Lastly here, the foundation of God's wrath. This really answers the question, why is God angry? Why is God angry? It says there, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, we have to come to an understanding that all men have rebelled against God's truth. All men. And this means that people know the truth. And they've rebelled against it. They, re- they suppress it, it says. They, they cling to their sins instead of the Lord. If you read verse 19, you'll see that men have had God revealed to them. We're going to be talking about that in the coming weeks. There's something built into man. God put a, a chip in us that somehow we, we know that there's a God. Unfortunately, we love our sin more than we love that God. And so, when that's the case, we seek to suppress the truth that's been revealed to them. And they go deeper into their sin. You know, the Bible says in Psalm 14:1, the fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. The fool. What that verse is teaching is that the fool is that person who says no to God. If you look in your translation, that word there is probably in italics. You could actually read it. The fool has said in his heart, no, God. No. No. Not going to do it. I don't want to know you. Nothing. It's a rebellion. Open rebellion. And they're constantly trying to suppress that truth so they don't have to deal with it. And then secondly, they've rejected God's truth. Not only do they rebel against the truth, but they also reject the truth of God. They reject the Bible. They reject the Word of God. They reject anything that has to do with God. And they refuse to walk according to His statutes, according to His standards, and they make up statutes and standards of their own. I want to tell you, millions of people are under the wrath of God, if not billions. I mean, all you have to do is look around you. And see, it's our duty to go to those millions and billions of people and tell them the good news. There's a cure. There's a cure for the wrath of God. There's a a way that you can be sheltered from the wrath of God to come. That's through Christ. And unless... 
we're willing to take that message to them, they'll never be saved. We need to understand that. That God tells us to go. He wants to use us in the salvation of even the elect. If that weren't the case, he wouldn't have left us here. He would have saved us and taken us right to heaven. But no, he, he wants to use us in that, getting that message out. Maybe you have somebody in your family, maybe a loved one, maybe a family member, maybe somebody you need to maybe spend more time praying. That God would be gracious to them because you don't want them to fall into the the hands of an angry God. That you don't want them to fall under the wrath of God. Pray. Pray that God would open their heart. Pray that God would give them light. Pray that God would, would somehow take the truth of his word and penetrate their dark heart. Maybe you're a Christian and you need to ask God for power to to witness. Be more vocal about Christ. People are dying more frequently, it seems. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ. Maybe you need to come and, and receive the work of Christ. In the silence of your heart, you can open your life to Christ even now. Ask Him to remove you from the wrath of God to come. Accept the fact that He bore your sin on a cross in His own body. And He was buried, He rose the third day. And you put your faith in Him to save you from God's wrath. If we're Christians here today, this is really a message of rejoicing. It really is. Because for us, the wrath of God has been extinguished forever in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us who have been saved by grace, the grace of God, stand under the umbrella of His grace, forever sheltered and protected from that terrible wrath of the Almighty God. That's the reason to praise Him and give Him glory. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for just this brief little way that we looked at the wrath of God this morning. Lord, help us to leave here understanding that you're a God who loves us dearly. You gave your own son for us. But Lord, there's also that wrathful, angry, vengeful side. And it will be carried out one day against all those who refuse to put their faith or trust in Christ. And so we pray, while we live in the age of grace, while that message is still active, there'll come a day when Jesus will not come as Savior. He will come as judge, and it will be too late. And so we pray, Lord, if there's any here this morning, that you will move them to turn to you as a shelter in time of trouble. We thank you. And Lord, we just pray you'd bless our day today. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.